praise the Lord. I'm happy to be here today. Uh, when Roger uh, kind of told us what this sermon series was going to be on the names of God, I immediately knew what I wanted to preach, and, uh, and I knew I immediately didn't want to preach it, uh, if that makes any sense. Um, uh, so I already had my name. I didn't know what they called it in the Hebrew, but I knew what we called it, and um, man, I picked a doozy. But uh, I'm excited to preach it today. I'm going to go ahead and open this up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you today, and I want to thank you, Lord, for, for being here in church today, Lord. I want to thank you for your power, Lord. I want to thank you for your glory and your majesty, Lord. And Lord, most of all, your sacrifice, Lord, so that we could come to a saving knowledge of your Son, Lord. Lord, I ask you to be with this service, Lord. Please uh, use me as your mouthpiece, Lord. Have me say everything you would want me to and nothing that you wouldn't. Lord, I plead the blood of Jesus Christ on this place and these people, Lord, and ask, us to hedge, or ask you to hedge us about, Lord. Thank you for all you do in advance. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen. All right, well, I'm excited now that I got my voice back. Um, I was really worried about that because I was starting to crack, and my voice was, uh, um, I sounded like I was 13 years old again, and it wasn't going well, and uh, now I can hoot and holler again, so everything's good. The name that I picked, or God picked, and laid on my heart was Jehovah. And I just had a, a, a gentleman that is Jewish tell me how to say it, and it's Makedish. I was saying, Google told me it's Imkedish. That's not true at all, so thank you, Google. But it's Makedish. And what it means is, is the Lord who sanctifies. Now, I could preach... Ten Sundays from now, all ten of them, uh, about the sanctification of the Lord. But what does the word sanctify mean? If you actually break down the Hebrew, you realize that it means set apart. It means holy. And we're talking about God, not us, through this sermon series. So I want to focus on the holiness of God. So let's go to, if you want to turn there, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 through 8. Now the first service, I tried to read it off that screen back there, and um, apparently I'm not as young as I used to be, because that is, I don't know what that looks like back there anymore. That's a little TV. So I'll read it from here with y'all. All right, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. Sanctify yourselves therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God, and ye shall keep my statutes, and do them. I am the Lord which sanctifies you. And then we're going to go to Leviticus chapter 20, just a couple pages to the right, verse 26. And I can read it back there now. And ye shall be holy unto me, for I am the Lord, or I the Lord am holy, and have severed you from other people, that ye should be mine. Now the word sanctified appears in the Bible over 700 times. So I think it might be something that God takes a little seriously, don't you think? God does not repeat himself unless it's important. And to use something over 700 times seems a little important to me. Now you can ask me, what does the word holy mean? Well, I could just tell you that holy means good. But that would not in and of itself be good enough. The word means moral purity. It means perfection. It means God is pure. He is white as the driven snow. He does not have spot, nor does he have wrinkle, nor does he have a blemish. He is perfect in every sense of the word, and he has moral perfection in every sense of the word. God is perfect. God is separated from all things and all creatures which are not morally perfect. God cannot tolerate sin in any capacity. So much so that God cannot tolerate a sin. 
How many sins did it take for Adam and Eve to be expelled from the garden? It took one sin, and it wasn't something they did deliberately. They were deceived by the serpent. But because of that mortal imperfection, God could not allow them in His presence any longer. Just like when light appears, the darkness flees because they cannot coexist. When God's perfection was exposed to Adam and Eve's sin, they had to depart. It wasn't because God wanted them to leave. It's because they physically could not be there with God. It couldn't happen. God has zero tolerance. It contradicts His nature. You know what the problem with churches and Christians in America today is? Have you guys ever thought about that? We have made God common. We have cheapened Him. We have watered Him down. Holiness means that God is not ordinary. God is not common, and he will never be anything that we want to conform him to be. When you have changed any attribute of God, when you have watered down God, when you have made a comfortable God, when you have cheapened God, it is no longer God. It is an idol that you have created for your own comfort. You might as well worship the devil because it's the same thing. It's a systemic problem in our country. God is holy. It is impossible to bring God down to our level, and that's what we do every day as Christians. Every one of us in here does it from time to time, but the problem is most people in most churches and most churches bring God down to our level, which isn't possible. He is high and lifted up. He is exalted. He is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. He does not come down to you. You go up to Him. He cannot come down. He is too high. He is too exalted. He is too lofty. And you are not that special compared to Him. I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings. But sorry, not sorry, I guess. It's true. Psalms 111.9 He sent redemption unto His people. He hath commanded His covenant forever. Holy and reverend is His name. Now reverend, if you actually look in the Strong's at the, at the Hebrew, it actually means awesome. Now, let me tell you a little story about awesome, right? No, I'm not going to talk about my wife. Okay. Okay. Sorry, these things, I should have rolled them one more time. They're kind of slipping down my arms. So, uh, my buddy Mike and I, Kayla, Wednesday night, she's on Marketplace. She always finds stuff on Marketplace that I have to go get, right? How many of you guys have wives that do that? Yeah, you guys know my pet. We should start a club or something. But my wife is on Marketplace, and she finds all this industrial shelving for free, right? And there's these shelves that are probably six or seven hundred bucks a piece, and there's 30 of them. They're all free. And she's like, you should go get these. I was like, ah, this will be simple. We'll just pop them apart. We'll throw them in the trailer. It'll be no problem at all. So my buddy Mike and I go out there, and it's at Merritt's because they're closing down their shipping part. And um, it took us an hour and 15 minutes to get the first one out the door. Okay? So we're like, we got to do something different. By the time we were done six or seven hours later, we only got 14, by the way. By the time we were done six or seven hours later, we had the wisdom to not bring any drinks with us. We thought we were only going to be there for half an hour. And we're dying. I am, I I mean... I know you can't tell by my appearance, but I am not in the best shape out there. So Mike and I were dying of thirst. 
And uh, we're going to get the last table that they had offered us. And what did we see? Lo and behold, we saw a vending machine with soda in it. Praise the Lord. It was amazing. And I got me a Mountain Dew. And I got Mike a Diet Coke. And you know what happened? When I hit the Diet Coke button, two Diet Cokes came out. And I said to Mike, man, that is awesome. And I remembered I'd been studying this. And I felt so stupid when I said that. We have perverted that word in the English language so much that it is unrecognizable for what God intended it for. It is not what you think it is. Kind of like how we, God is not what we think He is, at least in terms of holiness. Do you know what that word awesome means? It means abject fear. It means mingled dread. It means veneration and wonder. It does not mean that something's cool. God is awesome. It says that he is holy and he is awesome. Now, I want to get on one of my pet peeves here, okay, because I think it'll help you. I hope it doesn't make you mad, but if it does, let's, let's get in the Bible for that, okay? I hear all the time that God is love. And if I had to pick one single attribute of God, I would pick love and say that that is God's probably strongest attribute that he expresses to the world. We see that through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. But God is not love. God is a lot of things. God is love, God is mercy, God is grace, God is wrath, God is judgment. And there's a couple places which we ignore in the Bible where God hates things and sometimes people. And we ignore all that. Love is an attribute of God. It is not God. You know what God is though? God is holy. And His love is holy. And His grace is holy. And His judgment is holy. And His wrath is holy. And even His hatred is holy. And everything that proceeds out of God is holy. It all comes from His holiness. And when we just say God is love because I hear His excuses for immorality. I hear His excuses for apathy. I hear it as excuses for everything you can think of in the Christian life. Well, God's just love, so He's okay with it. No, He is not. God is holy and He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And just because our culture has changed doesn't mean one thing about God has changed. Nothing has. I don't know about you guys, but I think we've cheapened God and the idea of God in our churches today so much so that God is unrecognizable. We're not even worshiping God anymore. We're worshiping some watered-down, powerless idol that we created for comfort. I don't know about you guys, but my God, when I write it out, starts with a big G. Not that little G. You know what that big G symbolizes? It symbolizes that God is singular. He is the only one. There's a lot of little G gods in the Bible. There's a lot of little G gods in this world. Money is a little G God. But that big G God stands alone. And He is holy. Man. God is just awesome. Every aspect of God is out of His holiness. And I know how blessed we are to be living for Christ in this country. 
and I don't take it for granted. We live, even though we have all these problems, especially the last several years, we have all these problems that have come up, but we still live in the greatest country in the world where we can express ourselves religiously, freely, without any fear of repercussion other than somebody maybe berating us, you know, because they don't believe in what we believe in. But we're not thrown in prison. We're not killed. We're not beaten. You look in Afghanistan right now. I was reading about people that are going to church right now, and they're saying, well, we're going to go to church. If we die, we die. My goodness, if your kid's playing soccer, you miss church now. But we got people in Afghanistan that have nothing and love God so much they're willing to martyr themselves just to love God. You know why? Because they, they recognize His holiness. That comfortable God that you're worshiping is not God. And He can do nothing for you. But you like Him? Now listen to this. He can do nothing for you, but you like him because he does nothing to you. That's why. That's what it boils down to. You like him because he does nothing to you. That is not God. You have brought God down onto your level. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. He is high and lofty. He is not down on our level. Stop it. Stop pulling him down when all he wants to do is lift you up. You have cheapened and forgotten who your father is. Another preacher I heard said it like this, and I loved it. God is not your good buddy. He is not the man upstairs, and you and Jesus do not have your own thing going on. You're telling me that the God that never changes, the God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever, billions upon billions upon billions of people that have existed, he changed his character for you only. No one is that stupid. God does not change for you. You change for God. That's how it works. Isaiah 6, verses 2 and 3. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. Twain is two, by the way, in case anybody's curious. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now we're talking about the seraphims that Isaiah saw in his vision, flying around God, declaring the majesty of God, saying, Holy, holy, holy. Did you know nothing else in the Bible is repeated in triplicate besides holy, holy, holy? We don't hear love, love, love. We don't hear mercy, 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 or grace, grace, grace. We hear God is holy, God is holy, and God is holy. Because that's what He is. That is this essence of God. He is morally and absolutely perfect. Is that my beard again? Sorry, (laughs) y'all. 
We have no word in the English language to describe the, holy, uh, the holiness of God in any language. The best word to describe is it transcends. Do you know what transcends means? It means it flies higher and goes further than our understanding can ever have happen. We cannot understand it because the understanding of God's holiness flies higher and goes further than we could ever grasp. But I want to talk about those seraphims a little more. Now, we don't know everything about them. We, in fact, we don't know a lot about them. They're, they're only mentioned, I believe, two, two times in the Bible. Once in Isaiah, and I think once in Revelation. I could be wrong about that. Don't quote me. <clears throat> but we don't know a ton about them. But we know a couple of things. We know, number one, they are the holiest of any creature that God has ever created. And we know they're the most powerful of any creature that God has ever created. Well, how do you know that? Because of their proximity to God. They are the closest thing to God outside of Jesus sitting at his right hand. Now these seraphims, it says that when they're flying around, two wings are covering their face and two wings, I can't touch my toes anyway, but you guys can imagine I'm covering my feet right now, okay? The, uh, the seraphims cover their feet. Why do they do that? I am talking about beings that are absolutely perfect. They are sinless. They are without blemish, spot, wrinkle, anything. They are the most perfect thing that God has ever created, ever. They're the most perfect thing that God has ever created. So much. I mean, I would say the holiness of these seraphims is so much. If they were to come in contact because of their the proximity to God, if they were to come in contact with us, I would bet we would probably die. Because the Bible says if we get in the presence of God, it will kill us because of our unholiness. But these seraphims, which are perfect and have nothing to be ashamed of, fly around with wings over their faces. Why? Because even them in their perfection cannot look upon the glory of God. But we approach Him like it's nothing. They cover their feet, and there's a lot of different things that people think why they cover their feet. I kind of tend to agree with R.C. Sproul. He says because feet represent clay, and clay is the dust of the ground which represents creation. My wife disagrees with me, and she's wrong, of course, but um, my wife disagrees with me and thinks it's because it's customary when you go to the East in Muslim countries, Asian countries, you cannot expose your feet to a king because it is disrespectful. I tend to think that that's probably just an imputed law that God put into us because of that. I don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is, they are humble and contrite before God, and they have no reason to be. Do you know why they are? Because they realize it's not their right to be there, it's their privilege. And then we look at some other people in the Bible. We look at Isaiah. And after he had the vision of God, how many of you guys think it would be awesome to get to go to heaven temporarily and see the, the seraphims, uh, you know, saying, holy, 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 all the things in heaven and the streets of gold and the walls of jasper and all these things. How many of you guys think that would be cool? Anybody? You can raise your hand. It's okay. You guys think that would be cool? I surely don't. You know why? I did before I read what Isaiah said. Do you know what happened to Isaiah after he got done with that? He pronounced judgment on himself to his own death. He wanted to die. Because after experiencing the presence of God, he didn't say, oh, that was cool. That's how much we've cheapened God. 
What he did is he realized his own, his own unholiness by being in the presence of God. And it was so convicting to him, he thought himself worthy of death at that point. We have cheapened God. We look at Moses, and after seeing the burning bush, he removed his, feet, his shoes because God said it is holy ground, and it says he trembled. He was terrified in the presence of God. He saw that God was awesome, and he had abject terror. And then we look at Saul, the persecutor of Christians, probably consented to Stephen's death. And he had his Damascus Road experience where Jesus appeared to him in all his Shekinah glory. And it was blinding. And Paul humbled himself and lay prostrate on the ground because he knew he was experiencing the presence of God. And the only thing he could do was lay face down on the ground. But we've cheapened God. So if you look at these seraphims and you look at Isaiah and you look at Moses and you look at Saul and you look at so many other examples in the Bible, now draw a circle around yourself. How do you act in God's presence? I would venture to say that they're not similar. The church needs to find the holiness of God again. I want to tell you there's two very simple ways to do that. Very simple. Number one. It's right here. Get in your Bible. Read this book, the living word of God, and it will renew your mind, is what the Bible says. Sanctification is mentioned over 700 times. Read about some of them. You get closer to God, you understand His holiness better when you read about His holiness. The second one isn't so fun. And it's through discipline, and that's what America needs right now. That's what our churches need right now. We need spanked a little bit. We need whooped. I was just talking to Bob about that. My goodness, how pious and cheap we have gotten. I think it's because of all, we're living off the blessings of the past, off our forefathers right now, why we haven't got whooped yet. But I think that time is quickly coming where that's going to expire and we're going to cash out. And it's scary to me. It's scary for me to look at my kids and see that and see what they're going to experience here in America. And for you, that, those of you that have kids, I'm sure you feel the same way. But we have made God common and it makes him sick. I personally believe that the judgment of God is not too far away from our churches, specifically. And we're seeing that now. If you look at Canada, pastors are being jailed for what they say. If you look at Australia, pastors are being jailed for what they say. If you look at England, pastors are being jailed for what they say. Do you think we're that far off? When you look at Facebook and you look at all the social media and everything that's going on in our news and all that kind of stuff with social justice warriors and, and all this kind of nonsense, policing what we say, do you think the churches are that far off? God's judgment is coming. And you can ask, how do I know that? Because I'm a student of history. And when a society over the last 6,000 years, whenever a society gets to the level of moral depravity that we are at right now, and calling good bad and bad good, then God destroys that civilization, destroys that nation. Time and time and time again, without exception, it's happened. 
When you've got people in Washington and Oregon State trying to legislate that it's okay for a grown man to date an eight-year-old girl, I'm sorry, that makes God sick. He calls that an abomination. And I will scream it from the pulpit, and if they make it a crime, I'll start a prison ministry. It's wrong. In the New Testament dispensation, we have an open invitation to the throne of grace, to the presence of God. Do you know what the Jews would have done for that kind of opportunity? For those 400 years where they didn't hear from God to just be able to kneel and pray and be in the presence of God. Do you know the opportunity that you waste? We spit on God when we make Him cheap and common. And I always used to say, God desires to be number one in our life. No, He doesn't. And you say, of course He does. No, He doesn't. Because if he's number one, that implies that there's a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, and so on and so forth. God does not want to be in competition with anything and come in first. He wants to be everything. But we say God's number one. There is nothing that comes in any place behind God. We need to learn how to act in the presence of God like the seraphims, like Isaiah, like Moses, like Saul, which became Paul because of that experience. I want to quickly break that down. Actually, I skipped one thing I wanted to point out. We do not take the name of God seriously, and we do not give it the weight that, it wants to, that God wants. You take an Orthodox Jew, for example, and you try to get him to say the name of God, and he won't, he won't do it. There is no circumstance where he will do that. Why? Because he is terrified of offending the glory of God. They will not say the name of God whatsoever. In fact, when they write it down, they put G underscore D. They won't even write it out because they're afraid of offending the glory of God. And you say, hey, that's a little extreme. Well, I would rather be on that side of the ditch, on that side of the road, than over here and making God something that we market on a t-shirt. I'd rather err on the side of caution when it comes to the holiness of God. So I want to break this down. There's two ways that a Christian can experience God's presence. Number one is what I've been talking about this whole message. That's when men are struck down before the presence of God. That is when you're kneeling before His throne and you are prostrate in front of Him because you recognize the holiness of God. And what that does when you recognize the holiness of God is it unveils to you the unholiness that you have in you. And you know that you cannot reconcile with that and that you have to lay prostrate in front of God because of that disconnection. We are so blessed that when we come before God, though, that we can see it and God can't because when He looks at us, He sees the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you realize how big of a, a, a transition that is? 
For our unholiness, our wretchedness, we're altogether unpure. We're altogether wicked is what the Bible says. But when we go before God because of Jesus' sacrifice, all he sees is righteous, perfect, sinless. But you know what that doesn't wash away? Our knowledge of it. When God casts our sin as far as it is from the east from the west and says he remembers it no more, it doesn't take it away from us. We keep it because we need to recognize that we are not God. We are not holy. But it's before that seed of God that I want to talk to you guys about. It's where men are struck down before him because of his holiness. It's where we lay prostrate at his feet like Paul did on the Damascus road. It's where we see our own depravity like Isaiah did and condemn ourselves to death because we see the difference between us and God. And it's where we're full of fear like Moses was when he saw the burning bush because his holiness unveils our unholiness. Now the other experience, the one that most of you guys are probably used to, is that wedding experience that we see in John chapter 2 where Jesus is there with his disciples and they're laughing and they're joyous and they're eating, they're having a good time and the children are dancing and everything is going great. And I kind of equate that to where we're in a worship service with corporate worship and you know we feel like God is showing up and we feel God's presence. And that's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Don't discount that I'm saying the other one is so important. So is this one. The problem is there's two types of the presence of God. And we only want the children playing one. And because we only want the children playing one, is we stay children spiritually. We never grow up and experience the other one. And I'm talking spiritually, of course. We never grow up spiritually enough to learn to fear God and understand that presence that you can experience with Him. And once you get a taste of that and you get past the fear, you realize that that is how far God had to reach down to grab you. And you feel the arms of God envelop you and just take you. You understand how messed up you were when God took you. Ron was telling me that um, R.C. Sproul does this illustration and he takes and one person sets them over here and, and they're God. And he takes one person here and they're Apostle Paul and he takes one person there and they're Hitler. And he says, how far do you think they are away from God? How, how holy do you think they are? How unholy do you think they are? And he takes Paul and he puts him right next to, the apostle, or right next to Hitler. You know Why? Because when you compare anything to the holiness of God, it is altogether corrupt. There is no good or bad or in-between or gray. You are altogether impure, unpure. I don't know what the word is. Problem is, if we can't learn holiness on our own, God will be forced to teach us. I've been whooped by God a bunch of times. It's not fun. But it's out of love. Because as we discipline our children, God disciplines us because we want them to turn out right. Because we un- want them to understand. We don't, we don't, I'm not advocating spanking kids, but you're not supposed to advocate that. I'm not saying what you guys do or I do. But uh, um, 
Anyway, you discipline your kids because you love them. And God will discipline us because he loves us and he doesn't want to leave us where we are. But he also isn't going to come down from there to here. He wants to lift us up. And the only way he can lift us up is by getting us to the next level and the next level and the next level. So, don't you think it's time to rediscover the holiness of God? I do. I think it's time to rediscover the holiness of God in our churches, in our homes, in our families, and most importantly in our hearts because it starts with you. So I want to challenge you today, and I'm almost done. I don't know who specifically God had me write this message for. I would venture to say that it was all of us because I need this just as bad as all of you do. And if you don't think you do, then you especially do. None of us will ever grasp the holiness of God. When we get to heaven and all our corruption is stripped away and we have all knowledge, we still won't understand the holiness of God, I don't think. Because even the, seraph, or even the seraphims can't look upon God. Just stop making God common. Stop watering him down. Stop changing him and start changing you. So this is my challenge. Twofold. Number one, you need to read your Bible. If you don't read, I think there'd be people very embarrassed in here. And uh, my old pastor, he did this a couple times. How many of you guys ra- or prayed and read your Bible this morning? Have you raised your hands in church? I'm not going to do that to you guys, okay? I don't want to embarrass anybody. I don't think God's about embarrass- embarrassing anybody. But if I was to ask that right now, there'd be a large group of people who would be embarrassed. And if I was to ask the question, how many of you guys prayed and read your Bibles every day this week? Or every day this month? Or every day this year? I bet there'd be less than a dozen people. Read your Bible for five minutes and pray for two minutes if you're not doing it already. Five minutes. Five minutes to change your life, two minutes to change your life again. And that's seven minutes. You say, that's a lot of time, I'm super busy. You're too busy for God? Well, I'm sure glad God wasn't too busy for us when he sent his son. Seven minutes earlier and you change. It changes you. You know what happens when your heart gets right? Your family's heart gets right. You know what happens when your family's heart gets right? Other families' hearts get right. You know what happens when that happens? The church gets right. When the church gets right, the county gets right. When the county gets right, the state gets right. When the state gets right, the country gets right, and the world follows, and we've changed everything by spending seven minutes. But you're too busy. Shame on us. Do you know how much power you have? Do you know how much power Jesus and the Holy Spirit has bestowed upon us being the sons of God? Being joint heirs with Jesus. But we can't be troubled for seven minutes. And I don't say stop at seven minutes. If you're reading and praying more than that, don't go down to seven minutes, okay? Okay, don't say, Josh said. No, that's not what I'm saying. But the thing about the Holy Spirit is, as you get right with God, he's going to convict you and that five minutes is going to turn into 10 and 10 and 15 and 15 and 30, 30 an hour. Who knows? But it's going to fundamentally change you, which will fundamentally change this church, which will fundamentally change the world if we could just get a hold of that. And the other thing is, is my wife's idea, she does this. And I'm going to start doing it. But you need to start recognizing the holiness of God. And when you pray, 
We say, our Father, which art in heaven, is how, how God told, or Jesus told us to pray, right? We recognize his loftiness. But we also recognize his closeness. She's, I think you should say, holy, holy, holy is God when you're praying. And I think it will remind you consciously of who you're talking to. Because to have the right perspective when you go to the throne of grace will change your prayer life. Stop changing God and start changing yourself. And by doing that, you'll help everyone. You want to see your family get saved? Change yourself. You want to see your friends get saved? Change yourself. You want to see God bring your children or your, your cousins or your friends back into church? Change yourself. Be the example. Change yourself. Because you can't change God. Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. And I thank you, Lord, for these wonderful people, Lord. And I just ask, Lord, that you would plant that seed of your holiness in their heart, Lord, so that they could understand it, Lord. I ask you to help it to germinate and grow, Lord. And I just love you today. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.